Welcome to the American Shoulder Neville Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder neville surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, University of Utah, University of Colorado, or the or Washington University in St. Louis. Today, we have a special episode for you about a somewhat controversial topic, the traumatic rotator cuff tear. We've all seen this patient, the 60-year-old who suffers a fall and has an acute sudden increase in pain and de decrease in the function of their shoulder. In this type of patient, how do we determine what's new, what may have been pre-existing? Does the history change how we best help this patient? What does the evidence su suggest? To discuss, we've invited an internationally renowned expert on rotator cuff disease. We have Dr. Jay Keener, the Director of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Keener, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to join you guys this evening. Well, we're really excited to have you on. I wanted to start by talking about the history. So you have a patient who comes in, they have a diagnosis of a rotator cuff tear. What what do you get into in the history when you're talking to that patient? Do you ask about traumatic incidents, length of symptoms? Which of those things play into your um, in, into your initial discussions with the patient? Um, I think the history is important. Um, that along with the exam findings and the imaging. Um, so the history I think is relevant in terms of like the onset of symptoms. Um, I think the majority of cuff disease that we see is either atraumatic or associated with relatively mild trauma. Like sometimes the patients will ascribe a mild event to the onset of their symptoms, but it's really not traumatic. Um, but it is helpful if somebody clearly has a normal shoulder and there's a, an event that results in trauma, either from a fall or a lifting injury, and then there's a sudden change in symptoms resulting from that. Certainly your radar, my radar goes up for concern for a, a, an increase in structural damage. And I'm probably more likely to image that patient sooner rather than adopting a purely conservative route and just kind of watch and see how they do. Well, speaking of imaging, talk to us about how you like to image these patients. Are you more of an ultrasound person or are you more of an MRI or other imaging? What do you look for to help understand the acute versus chronic, potentially chronic nature, even in the acute injury setting? I think that's a great question. And I think there's debate there. Um, I would say as years gone by, I use ultrasound a little bit less um, and I'm relying a little bit more on MRI. But I would say that a lot of my patients that have a cuff-based exam and they have symptoms that are not really traumatic in onset and symptoms for three months or longer, but their strength is relatively well-preserved. I, if I really want to know what's going on in the shoulder, I'll check an ultrasound. I think that's a great screening test. It's been shown to be equal accuracy to MRI for diagnosis of a tear. But when you get into more complex situations where somebody may have had some pre-existing pain and they, they now have had an event and there's weakness uh, on their history, weakness on their exam, and you're wondering, you know, what is the chronicity of this tear? And more importantly, what do the muscle bellies look like? I think an MRI is more helpful. You can certainly have signs of acuity of injury from an MRI that you won't discern very well on an ultrasound. 
And I think it's very appealing to be able to look at the muscle bellies yourself and grade them and uh, on the MRI, as opposed to relying on the radiologist classification of the muscle atrophy, because the muscle atrophy grading system we use for ultrasound is not quite as granular or obvious as an MRI is. Tell us a little bit about muscle atrophy. I know that really comes to, to, to play when you talk about traumatic versus non-traumatic. When you see a patient who has atrophy, what does that tell you about how chronic the tear is? Well, um, in general, atrophy is a reasonable surrogate for chronicity. But if you have an acute traumatic event with retraction of the, of the tendon, uh, sometimes that retraction can falsely... Uh, um, can suggest muscle atrophy that may not be there. Um, so for example, if you have a, let's say you fall and there's a complete rupture of the supraspinatus and the cable is torn and the supranipraspinatus are retracted, sometimes there'll be atrophy without significant fatty infiltration. And that can be a little bit misleading. So in, in that case, atrophy is not really present. But for the average tear, uh, I think um, the atrophy is a pretty good marker of chronicity. The problem is we don't know how long it takes to develop muscle atrophy in a given tear. So if you look at the research that's out there, Gilles Walsh and Barbara Milas have published on supra and infraspinatus atrophy and, and followed it um, according to the onset of symptoms um, um, based on CT scan. And they concluded kind of retrospectively that atrophy didn't really take place until two and three years after a tear. And uh, so that's not really helpful um, all the time for distinguishing acute from chronic. But if you have an MRI acute, uh, fresh after an injury, you can sometimes see some clues that it's an acute event other than muscle atrophy. And those typically would involve like a lot of peritendinous fluid. Um, you can have a retracted tendon that is not shortened. So it's, it's kind of recoiled or wavy or kinked rather than shortened. Um, and you can have some edema within the muscle belly itself. So those are pretty good clues. Marcus Lowe has studied um, MRI changes on patients with acute versus chronic tears. And instead of relying on the amount of retraction of the tendon, he relied on those three factors, basically fluid around the tendon, fluid in the muscle, uh, a wavy or kinked tendon, and then the absence of advanced muscle atrophy. So so the atrophy is a reasonable um, surrogate, and it's certainly helpful when you don't see muscle atrophy. But if you have a patient that has, let's say, grade three changes uh, without a history of trauma, you really don't have a big, a large clue as to when the tear developed and when the atrophy started. I love that hint about looking for cases where you think there's actually where there's no infiltration and then just trying to look maybe more immediately on the slices. Right. You know, you've done a lot of research on proximal humeral migration. Do you think that takes time to develop? Or do you think even in the acute traumatic tear, you can have acute proximal migration? That's a really good question. Most of the tears that we looked at uh, for proximal migration were chronic tears. And uh, we clearly showed that the infraspinatus footprint is kind of the critical um, um, tendon complex, muscle tendon complex to keep the head centered in the coronal plane. Um, but um, in my experience on the acute traumatic tears where let's say their patient really um, is very weak 
Um, a lot of times you don't see that advanced muscle, uh, that, I'm sorry, the advanced migration that you see in more chronic tears. You can see some subtle migration, but I think that that develops a little bit later um, as opposed, I mean, a little bit later from the timing of the tear. Uh, but I don't think that that question has been completely answered. But in the setting of a chronic tear, the more the infraspinatus footprints involved, the higher the head goes for sure. Let's get into the meat of this here. Say you've got a 70-year-old male patient. He fell two weeks ago and had a sudden onset of pain. He comes to see you. His pain's improved, but he still has limited forward elevation. An MRI, which he brought in with him, he's got a massive tear of the upper half of the subscap, the supra, and the infra. No appreciable atrophy. How are you managing this patient? Are we starting with injections, acute repair, right to reverse? And again, he's 70 years old. Um, if he had no pre-existing symptoms in the shoulder and you're suggesting there's no muscle atrophy changes, I would, I would say that this patient has a reasonable chance of healing with a surgery. And as we know from much of the research out there, age is probably the number one predictor of healing capability after cup repair surgery. So I would have a really honest discussion with this patient that there is potential downside to non-operative treatment, and that would include uh, injections and time from the from injury. So you could certainly rehab him for a short period of time and see him back in four to six weeks and see if he's able to regain some motion. But when the subscap is torn, the biceps is often unstable. You're talking about a three tendon tear or a two and a half tendon tear. Um, I think that 70 year old can actually heal much like a 60 year old with a degenerative tear if you get to it relatively acute. Um, so in the absence of significant arthritis in the joint and somebody that's medically reasonably fit and wants, has a desire to stay active, I think I would offer that patient a surgery. You know, we certainly have the reverse arthroplasty or, or other options available. And certainly this patient may do okay with therapy alone, but the further you get out from the injury, the less repairable it is. And I think most people would say after three to four months, you lose some of the benefit of of, a, of an acute injury in terms of healing. So, um, so, the, so for me to answer your question, that depends a lot on who the patient is. Is it their dominant arm? Are they active? Uh, what's their medical health? Uh, could they tolerate the rehab from a cuff repair? Uh, all those things are important factors, I think, in that older patient. When we talk about age, do you have a cutoff? I mean, certainly we all look at physiologic age versus chronologic age. There's a lot of people, at least in the Denver and Boulder area, who might be in their 70s and 80s, but really look like they're in their 50s and 60s. And they they might behave a little bit differently than a patient who is physiologically older. Do you have an absolute cutoff for that patient that you would take for a repair in this situation? Or does it really not matter and it's more the whole clinical picture? Um, I, I think it's more the whole clinical picture um, for the reasons you cited. I, I have had some 55-year-olds in clinic today that aren't as healthy as some of the 70-year-olds that we treat. So I think it's more important to look at their general health and activity level. Um, having said that, would I fix an acute rupture in an 85-year-old? I'm not sure. Um, I think that um, uh, there's probably is a time point where even an acute injury is not going to do well clinically. But then you get into the argument of, well, maybe an 85-year-old doesn't need a healed cuff repair to do well. 
So I, I'd probably non-op that patient and, um, 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 you know, favor conservative management. But that's a tough question to answer. But I, I think for me, it's more of a gestalt on who they are and what their physiologic health is. You know, one of the things in our clinical scenario was the size of the tear. We described a massive tear, a three tendon tear. Do, has, has it been your experience that usually the traumatic tears are larger or smaller? I feel like the literature is not particularly helpful in this regard. Um, I think the uh, traumatic tears tend to be a little bit larger. I don't know what you all think, but uh, a lot of times um, these are bigger tears. Um, if the, especially uh, if you think about the upper subscap and the anterior supra where the cables attached, most degenerative tears in my experience, kind of start in the crescent and, and spread forward and backward and kind of slowly grow. Um, the traumatic tears seem to either be bigger or involve what we think are critical elements to protect the muscle bellies over time. Let's talk a little bit about the chronicity. You mentioned that you know you would think about if the patients that I want to try non-op, that you would have a shorter period of time. So. Would you have this patient come back in six weeks? Do you worry about the injection literature saying that if you get an injection, you probably shouldn't have a surgery within six months? Would you be more likely to just do therapy and no injections for this patient? Yeah, I think the traumatic tear that's large and you think might might be a surgical candidate, I would do the therapy alone and not inject them. Um, the more common scenario is the older patient that comes in with a chronic tear and has an MRI, um, but done by their PCP and really hasn't had any treatment. I think those even large chronic tears can do surprisingly well with an injection and therapy, but that's kind of a different animal because you don't really think of the older patient with a massive tear that's chronic as a great surgical candidate. Okay, so we in the scenario we gave, we said that the patient fell two weeks ago, Let's change it to three months. It, does if the patient says they fall three months, does that change things for you? Would you still repair now? So when I guess my question specifically is, when does this patient change from an acute tear to a chronic tear? Um, I think it depends a little bit on which tendons are involved. So um, let's say patient has a hyperextension moment and uh, they they evolve their subscap but their posterior cuff's intact. I think the, the clock is ticking a little faster on a retracted subscap tear. Um, I don't know what you all think, but those can be very difficult to repair after two to three months of retraction. Um, I think in general, in an older patient, three to four months is that window where you, where you would consider it no longer an acute event and you might steer them towards non-operative treatment um, as, an, as an initial frontline treatment. Um, but a lot of times it's confusing because they'll come to you, you know, with a history of an injury three months ago and their MRI was done, uh, you know, two weeks after the injury, but they're not seeing you till three months later. And their MRI looked good at that time. Um, those patients sometimes will develop changes in their muscle relatively quick and or they'll have a retracted tear that's kind of hard to mobilize and pull over and repair. And for me, that's a little bit more of a of an issue if the subscaps involved and the anterior cables torn and the supers retracted through the glenoid rim so for me it's 
it's probably the tear si uh, pattern and size number one, followed by the time from injury number two. But there's not a lot of hard and fast rules there. Jay, has the last year to two years with the COVID-19 pandemic changed your approach to any of this? And the reason I ask is because in the last six months to a year, at least in Colorado, we have seen a very difficult situation with getting patients into physical therapy. In fact, it's harder to get into physical therapy than it is to get into my office. And so when we see these patients, whether they're that two-week-old injury or they're from the PCP and it's two to three months, and we say, okay, we might want to consider non-operative treatment, but then it might be a month before they can get into PT. And we try to encourage them to do a home exercise program, show them exercises in the office. But, you know, if they're in their 70s, that might be a little bit difficult to follow or comply with. Has that changed your approach to these patients at all? Or have you not had physical therapy access issues? We really haven't had therapy access issues. We've had patients that are kind of a little bit scared to go to therapy because it's, you know, it's a crowded situation and not all the time are patients wearing their masks, et cetera, but access really hasn't been an issue. Uh, but I think uh, you bring up a good point for some people. Um, if you can show them some exercises, give, give them some direction, um, have them purchase a, a home pulley kit. Uh, some of some of those pulley kits have extra active range of motion progression exercises with them. The Academy has a website that kind of goes through rotator cuff strengthening. And as you guys know, there's a lot of stuff available online. Um, but the issue is sometimes patients don't know where to plug their, their rehab in with a generalized exercise program. You know, it might not be appropriate for some of these patients to be doing general cuff strengthening exercises. So that's where working with the therapist who can tailor the program is very helpful. But I think we're we're in an age now where where due to COVID and also due to technology improvements, we people do have more access to information online, and we just need to nudge them in the right direction. Um, I I don't want to put in a plug for my own research, but this COVID thing just reminded we just we just finished a study at our place where we um you know while during there was a period of time with COVID where we didn't operate for six weeks. And during that period of time, what I did is I prospectively collected all the patients that I was going to do cuff repairs on. And I compared that group, my quote unquote delay group to the patients that I normally just, you know, cuff comes in and we get to it in a couple of weeks. And we had a huge difference in healing rates. We had a 58% healing rate in the delay group, the group that got delayed a minimum of six weeks of COVID as compared to the group that we were able to fix, you know, as they came in and we had operative time where the healing rates were about 85%. Wow. So based on that, one of the things that I want to ask you about specifically is, and we glossed over this a little bit, you know, in the, in the clinical scenario we gave you, the patient said that he had a fall two weeks ago. Now, what I wanted to ask you about is, does the history of a trauma change your prognosis? Or if that patient said, doctor, I've only had pain for two weeks, do, 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 does that change things for you? Does that change your prognosis for repair, the history of a trauma specifically? I think it does dramatically. So if you, it, there's a huge difference between somebody with a traumatic onset of shoulder pain for two or three weeks versus somebody that had a normal shoulder, had a ground level fall and now can't raise their arm or they have an acute traumatic tear. Um, personally, I think that those patients heal at a, at a, at a better rate. Um, there is some literature to suggest that there are better healing rates and better outcomes with repairs of tears acutely, um, but that literature is weak. 
It's a relatively um, um, small sample size uh, case series, uh, poorly controlled retrospective series. But um, there's no question in my mind from 17 years of clinical practice that the acute cuff tear without any muscle changes uh, can, can have a very high healing rate and have close to normal shoulder after surgery. One of the things I wanted to ask about here specifically is, you know, there, the literature I find difficult to interpret on this. I mean, I, it's hard to find a study that really shows that a traumatic history changes your prognosis. Probably the ones I've, I've looked at the most recently was George Morrell's study. George Morrell has done an incredible amount of great research on the cuff, but he has one study that shows that maybe a trauma doesn't make any difference. What, how do you interpret that literature? How does that change your thought process here? Um, I think it's really you need to look carefully at the at the paper and see um, how the patients um, presented, um, how they were classified as traumatic versus atraumatic, and what the you know the age um, distribution was, um, and the timing of surgery and the size of the tear. So George's paper is excellent because he's got high high power. He's got thirteen hundred patients in those series. And I think they, they looked at history of trauma versus atraumatic. But if you look at the, they really didn't show a significant difference in healing. In fact, the, the healing rate was very similar between the two groups. But the traumatic tears, the mean onset to surgery, I think was about six months uh, versus uh, 10 months in the degenerative tears, um, so, or the atraumatic tears. So, you know, you have a traumatic event, but they're not really fixed acutely. And this gets back to my point. If you don't fix a traumatic tear acutely, you probably lose some of the benefit of having the biological benefit, the, the biological environment for healing probably dissipates after three, four or five, six months. So, so it's a little bit misleading to say that traumatic tears don't heal as well or don't do as well clinically or, or don't do better clinically than degenerative tears be, uh, if you don't fix them acutely. So that's kind of the big issue there. And the other issue is if you look at the tear size in that group, the degenerative tears were 15 millimeters in width and the traumatic tears were 20 millimeters in width. And I would imagine that the healing rates, the differential healing rates between traumatic and atraumatic tears in a tear that size, especially somebody in their 50s or early 60s, is probably not that much different. Um, so, but the differential healing rates are much more profound if you have a patient that's a little older that has a four centimeter tear um, and you fix that acutely versus non-acutely, I would imagine that the traumatic tear is gonna heal much better, especially if it's fixed acutely. So, so I mean, it's a great paper. It's got good power. And, but, you know, I would argue that most of us think of traumatic tears as a relatively, you know, a, a positive indication for early surgery. And if the, if the traumatic tears were managed with surgery, not until a mean of six months later, then they're probably not acute any longer. I've certainly wondered that about um, literature from other countries that have maybe more difficulties with access to care where there's waiting lines. Like, it, does that change the, your approach? Does that change the literature as we interpret it from those countries? The things I wanted to ask you about um, is we, so in, in the initial scenario we gave, there was no atrophy. Now, I think we've all seen that patient who comes in and says, doctor, my shoulder was fine. And then I had an accident. Now I can't raise my arm. 
and you look at the you look at the MRI and there's grade three changes in the infraspinatus, there's grade three changes in the supraspinatus. How do you change your discussion with that patient? What do you tell that patient to try and explain to them what's happening with their shoulder? Yeah, that's a great question because you don't know how much of the tear is fresh versus um, old. So sometimes you can get clues on the MRI, as I mentioned earlier, about you know edema around the tendon, the length of the of the supraspinatus tendon um, can give you some clues. But in that case, you 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 certainly know that part of the tear is chronic, and um, in some cases, you know they patients will have a well compensated tear and don't know it, and and so it's really hard to have that conversation with the patient that. You know, doc, my shoulder was fine, and now you're telling me that this tear has been there for a while. What's that mean? And you have to explain to the patient that a lot of these degenerative tears are well compensated, um, and they can have actually have some muscle atrophy and really not have much pain, even in the presence of a tear. And then there's an acute event that makes the tear either inflamed or enlarges the tear, and now they're suddenly having pain. So. And I've seen before where pe people have isolated tears in their rotator crescent, then they have a fall and now their cable is torn and they've lost some of their force couple and they have a hard time raising their arm or they have a lot more pain. So, and, th and then you try to figure out, well, how do I manage this patient? You know, is this, you know, they have grade three changes already. Um, should I just rehab them or should I manage them acutely? And there you have to have a, a detailed discussion with the patient regarding the options and I let them choose, but it's a big gray area. And as you guys know, taking care of patients, they have, many of them have preconceived notions about what they should have done. You know, I was sent to the surgeon to talk about surgery and my shoulder is torn and you need to fix it. So a lot of times uh, the discussion is tempered by their expectations. So um, that therein lies the challenge of managing cuff disease, Peter. <laughs> that's, that's the reason why I, I wanted to ask you about it because you're such an expert here. And I, I find those conversations challenging again, because the patient comes in and often says, doc, what do you mean? My, my shoulder had a problem before. Like, I don't, I've, I'm living with it. You can't tell me my shoulder had a problem before. I, I know my shoulder didn't have a problem before. Yeah. Let me ask you about this with that patient though. If, if that patient comes in and says, doctor, I need, I need to have a surgery. You know, like my shoulder was, was better, my shoulder was good, now my shoulder's not right, you know, I need to have it fixed. Do you, does that, when you approach that patient, do you think more about a partial repair? Do you think more about a partial repair plus the biceps, or do, would you just do a debridement for that patient? What, how, how does the partial repair play into your, into your thought process for someone in, in that specific situation? Uh, that's a great case, uh, great, great question. So you're talking about still a 70 year old. Let's change it to a, let's change it to a 60 year old just for argument's sake. Yeah. So, cause the 70 year old, you always have that reverse arthroplasty, um, threshold a little bit lower, um, because there's a huge difference, as you know, between the rehab and recovery from a, from a reverse versus a partial cuff repair. So. So a 60-year-old, you're more likely to want to try to salvage the joint, and a partial repair is a reasonable option. There's pretty good literature um, from Derek Cuff and out of Korea, at least in the short term, that patients do well with a partial repair. Um, Derek's failure rate was 25%, uh, defined as, I think it was an ASCS score of 80 and need for revision surgery at two to three years follow-up. And then he subsequently followed them longer, I think 
very few of them had surgery. So a partial repair is a good option. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's modified expectations. I don't think uh, those patients can have improved pain relief. They can have improved range of motion and strength. They may have gotten some of that even with therapy alone without surgery. But I think, you know, it's reasonable to say 70 to 75% of patients will do well with that. Um, you have to explain to them, you know, you're looking at five to six months recovery. Um, but I think that that's a viable option in those patients. You may be able to get a complete repair at the time of surgery. You may be able to augment um, the repair with a graft or something. Um, so, you know, I think that if they're willing to buy into a longer recovery period, that's reasonable. Um, I certainly would try that, try some non-op treatment first if they already have some muscle atrophy um, and maybe consider a partial repair and just follow them over time. As you get to know patients, you, you, you understand their tolerance for rehab and recovery. And some people actually just don't do well with that. And, uh, and you end up thinking about a reverse replacement. Um, perfect example is a workman's comp patient that has a high demand job. So let's say, Peter, I'm, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Uh, same patient, 60-year-old, um, two tendon tear, grade three changes. You think a partial repairs is reasonable, but they're a bricklayer or they, um, they do electrician work and half of their work is overhead and they need to be able to lift overhead. You know, those patients, a lot of times, for me at least, it's a real challenge to, you know, will a successful partial repair give them enough strength and function to do that job? Or should I be thinking about a reverse replacement in those patients? Because in my practice, those patients are sent to me specifically for a reverse. And, um, and you're dealing with a workman's comp case where, um, you know, you don't want to operate more than once. You want a definitive solution for those problems. So there's multiple layers to these patients sometimes. It's not only their tear pattern, but, you know, their work demands and their expectations. But I do think in general, a partial repair is a good option. There is some data out of Korea that those partial repairs don't do well with longer term follow up. Um, so that they start to have higher failure, rate, failure rates after two years. So I still have that as a part of my tool belt in managing these patients. But if those patients tend to be younger and they tend to be not maybe not laborers or higher demand people. If, with that situation you mentioned, I wonder that's a patient I think is probably reasonably well suited for narcoscopic lower trapezius transfer too. So mm -hmm. I would. Uh, I, I, again, I'm not sure how that that's, I think this is where the, the cuff gets really challenging is how do, how do we fit together partial repair, lower trapezius transfer, reversed, who's the patient that's ideal for, for each? It, it, it becomes very individualized. Completely agree. Yep. Jay, one thing that's a really hot topic right now is adding or augmenting to our arthroscopic cuff repairs. And there are so many new technologies and grafts and implants that have made this easier, even for lower volume surgeons, whether it's an, an, a patch that augments a repair or, a, a, you know, an SCR where you're bridging. Um, and then of course, you know, with recent FDA approval, the balloon has come into play and not, you know, not an augment, but an alternative treatment for rotator cuff pathology. How do all of these 
types of treatments fall into your treatment protocol for these patients? When do you augment? How do you augment? What are your thoughts on the balloon? I think this will be a really hot topic for our listeners because so much of this is being pushed right now and discussed and and presented at, at all the different meetings. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have the right answer. I can tell you how I think about it. Um, so the literature does support using um, graphs, um, uh, allografts or xenografts for, uh, for rotator cuff repairs. Um, so there's a meta-analysis done uh, by Grant Garrigues that showed um, if you look at, if you compile the data and put it all together, there is a he better healing rate with a rotator cuff repair performed with a graft. But if you look at those studies very carefully, um, I think the difference in healing rate is maybe 10 or 20% higher with a graft. So it is better, but it's not dramatically better. So it's pretty rare for me to try a grafted repair as a primary surgery. My, for me, the indication for a graft for most patients, now I have done two or three grafts in a primary repair where the quality of the tissue is really bad, but for me, it's mostly a revision setting. So I'm, I'm imagining a younger patient, no arthritis, um, no Hamada three changes. They still have an acromial humeral interval and they look like they have a repairable tear. I tend to try to repair the tear. And if it's poor quality tissue, I'll augment the graft at the time of the revision surgery. Um, I have not really bought into using a graft as an interposition. Um, so in other words, if the tear is not repairable, it's severe retraction and tendon loss in a revision setting, and I don't think I can repair it, I'm not sure that a grafted partial repair is better than the other alternatives. And I tend to do a lower trapezius transfer in the younger patient with no arthritis, intact subscap, revision setting, I'm more likely to do a lower trap. So for me, my algorithm is either uh, on a revision setting is revision repair plus or minus a graft based on tissue quality. If it's irreparable and I don't want to do a reverse, I think a lower trap transfer is a good option. Um, I think um, I might disagree a little bit with Peter. I don't think a lower trap transfer is great for the, the patient that has a high demand job. Um, I, I'm not sure that it affords a, enough strength to be durable for people that do overhead work, but I've had a lot of success with lower trap transfers for uh, people that are have a medium recreational activity level and maybe have a white collar job. Um, I think that that's an ideal indication for that. So I think every one of us has our own different algorithm for <laughs> when we consider a graft. Um, and um, I tend to use a graft that is more, instead of being biologic, is actually structural. So I'll pass the, I'd rather, rather have a graft that has, you know, three millimeters, three or four millimeters of thickness and use that to actually augment my repair rather than just lay the thin one centimeter, uh, I'm sorry, one millimeter graft over an intact repair. Um, I'm looking for data. I'm still waiting for data that shows that that's better than a, than a repair alone. There probably is a role for that, but I don't think it's been very well defined. And then what about your thoughts on the balloon? as a, you know, as an alternative treatment for some of these difficult to treat rotator cuff tears? You know, the, uh, the uh, IVE study showed comparing balloon to partial repair showed no, clin no clinical inferiority. 
And those patients, some of those videos that Joe Abood shows and other, other ID investigators are very impressive. You know, rapid return of overhead function, uh, ability to get the patient back in, into rehab quickly. And more importantly, they showed some in sustained improvements in function even after the um, um, balloon had, quote, dissolved. So I think that those things are supposed to last around three months. So I think it, it does play a role, um, and especially for that younger patient that um, maybe you're looking, you don't want to do a reverse. Um, they still have an intact infraspinatus, but there's proximal migration. There's no external rotation lag signs. You're not sure they're a great lower trap transfer. I think a balloon is an attractive option for those patients. Um, my biggest issue with the balloon is I think it's, it's going to be market-driven in terms of indications. So you're going to have a lot of people putting balloons in instead of reverses. Uh, and if it's improperly indicated, it's probably not going to work well. And the other, in the, the other issue I have is the cost. So uh, the, the balloon right now, the cost that was quoted to our facility is higher than the implants, than the cost of the reverse shoulder arthroplasty. So um, we're, we, you know, we, our hosp many hospital systems just simply aren't going to allow that cost, um, allow that technology at this current price point. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done. The, the market will equilibrate and the cost will probably come down and we'll figure out that the balloon's a pretty good option for people that have, that are trying to avoid a reverse, that don't have arthritis, um, that have an intact subscap. And uh, if you can put the balloon in and give them some motion and some pain relief, I think that's that's potentially an attractive option. I just think that the next couple of years are going to be a little bit frustrating because you're going to have people using them indiscriminately and or uh, you know, price points that are ridiculous. We have the same issue at my place. I asked about the balloon and it was substantially more expensive than a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. And the, even with my initial email, they said, this is not going to be approved. You are not going to be able to use this at your place. Yeah. I want to defend myself a little bit on the lower trap. We, one of the issues that I've had, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is definitely with the reverse, I have had some issues with really high demand patients. I mean, I have patients that are coal miners that have to lift 100 pounds overhead and when I've done reverses in those, I've even had them break their chromians when they try and get back to work. I've had the same issue um, with people that need to chop wood to heat their homes, which is a question I didn't need, know that I needed to ask until I moved to Utah. What has been your experience with the reverse and higher demand patients? Have you had any issues? It sounds like maybe you haven't. No, we definitely have had issues. And I think you you know gave a good example of you know, somebody that really is physical and does heavy lifting, a lot of overhead stuff. The reverses, um, they they don't do as well, um, and they, they have either deltoid pain or they can develop acromial issues, like you've mentioned. I think um, I deal with a lot of what I call medium medium to high level laborers, where they're lifting and they're doing repetitive things, but it's not they're not trying to lift 100 pounds overhead. So. I think that that patients that uh, need to do chest level height work, overhead work, weights are under 25 pounds. Uh, they're looking more for holding a drill overhead, uh, pounding a nail overhead. Um, you know, I don't think there's any surgery that we can offer a patient that's going to allow them to lift 100 pounds overhead, other than a 
maybe a cuff repair that actually heals with reasonable muscle belly. So your point's well taken. The really high demand patients, the reverse is not a panacea. It certainly has some issues as well. Well, Dr. Keener, I really, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. This is, this was like a tour de force on the cuff. I know we asked you to talk about traumatic cuff tears and we meandered because I, I so enjoy talking to you about this and I learned so much every time you talk about it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us about it. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics um, because it's, uh, you know, we, we, I think we understand much better the natural history of tears and, and, um, uh, we understand there's so many treatment uh, algorithms that are out there right now. Um, we're still trying to figure out which are the best treatments for our patients. And um, um, it, so it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, I think a lot of it, what we offer patients is based on our own personal experience, uh, our own successes and our own failures. And um, um, so it's a great topic and I appreciate the opportunity from both Rachel and you to, to share my thoughts. And uh, I'd like to thank you and congratulate you. Uh, this The podcast, I've been getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people on the street regarding the podcast. So it's a very helpful what you're all are doing and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. I would echo Pete and just express my gratitude for you spending the last you know 45 minutes or so with us. It's interesting how you were saying that a lot of what we do is drawn upon our, our experiences and how our outcomes go in our own individual practices. But I, I would say that a lot of what many of us do around the country, if not around the world, is based on the work that you've published. Um, so you have a big influence on how most of us, if not all of us who do shoulder surgery practice. So thank you so much for your contributions to, you know, to the literature on this important topic and for continuing to do some of the hard work with the longer term outcome studies that are not always instantly gratifying. And with that, again, we want to thank Dr. Keener for joining us today. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. For Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.